You're listening to a message from Third Church in Richmond, Virginia, where we believe we are called together for the renewal of all things through Jesus Christ. To learn more about Third or how you can get involved with our community, please check out our website, thirdrva.org. That's T-H-I-R-D-R-V-A dot org. Thanks for listening. Hey, friends. Welcome to this special episode of our Third Church podcast, uh, where today we are going to be more deeply diving into the book of Revelation. I'm Becca Payne, the Director of Communications here at Third, and I am here with Corey Widmer, who has been faithfully leading us through this series. Hey, Corey. Hello, friends. Are you excited to be here? Oh, yes. I'm very excited. (laughs) I, I actually think he is, y'all. I think he's really excited. Um, so we just finished 15 weeks on Revelation, right in the middle of the worst pandemic in 100 years, in the wake of the biggest social unrest since the civil rights movement, and as if that wasn't enough, in the middle of a very divisive election. I also think it's worth noting, uh, most folks don't know this, but this was almost a sermon series that didn't happen um, based on a lot of logistical issues and uh, the load it was going to take um, on Corey, our preacher, and our other leaders. Um, So first off, why did you think we should look at this book at this time? That is a great question. I, it is true, like you said, that we almost bailed on it. And a lot of that was because of the sheer work that was required for this book. This is probably in over 15 years of preaching, this is probably the book that required the most uh, study and and um, preparation on my part for each sermon week by week. But the more I contemplated it, the more I just became convinced that this book is just such an essential book for our time. Um, this is probably the hardest year that any of us have ever had collectively. I mean, we've all had Various people have had very difficult personal years, but this is a year where we have all felt collectively the pain and the struggle of the world. And that's what this book is really about. This book is about people who are in a very, very difficult position um, for different reasons, obviously, but who are collectively experiencing tremendous um, displacement and suffering. And John is writing to encourage them. The ultimate purpose of this book is to help them patiently endure. That's the phrase that he uses many times, patiently endure. And so I just thought, you know, what a what a great time for us to go through this book and to call, to hear God's word, to um, patient endurance. But there were some other things that I just thought that made this book such an important moment uh, to read this book together. One is, um, like you mentioned, all of the social unrest this summer and all of the uh, reckoning that we're doing with our racial history as a nation and this book has so much to say about God's vision for multi-ethnicity and for this vision of the multi-ethnic community, and I knew that it would give us an opportunity to address that. This also often is called the most political book um, in the New Testament because, um, frankly, there's just so much in this book about resisting political empire because uh, that's what John and his um, congregations were up against, really calling them away from like political complicity and compromise to go the way of the Lamb. Um, which is which I've heard called the politics of the Lamb, so resisting politics of um, weaponizing the enemy and using violence and um, and instead going the way of suffering love. And so I just thought in a moment when we as Christians are really trying, trying to figure out what is the faithful way to engage politics, this was a great book to study as well. So it just it just seemed like the best possible book for this moment. 
Yeah, absolutely. It's just so interesting how what's happening in our homes and outside of our doors uh, seems to be converging in the same themes that we see throughout Revelation. Um, I totally know I can speak for you know myself and probably you listening that this has been incredibly timely and helpful um, in the season where we feel so much upheaval and sadness, and we are constantly being asked to patiently endure. <laughs> um, and I guess the one last thing to say, too, is that it's a book that, that is just brimming with hope, mm, which is what we really yeah, need. <laughs> that's good. We can we can use more of that right now. Yeah. Um, and I know this is a complicated book, and there are many ways to interpret it. Um, maybe you can just start as we uh, begin to kind of unpack this uh, extended look into Revelation by summarizing the main ways that folks interpret this book and how we've approached it this fall at third. I know you touch on these almost every week, but I think it's good. We kind of need to lay the groundwork here. Yeah, it's true. This book has been one of the most uh, contested books throughout church history because there's so many different ways of interpreting it. And um, there's been a lot of disagreement and even conflict within the Christian church about how to interpret this book. And so I tried to be real clear in the very beginning about the particular way that we would be approaching the book at third. Um, so let me just summarize very broad with a very broad brush three general ways that modern Christians tend to uh, interpret this book. The first is what's called the preterist view, the preterist view, which is from the Latin uh, preteritum, which means the past. So this this view basically sees everything in Revelation as occurring in the distant past, in the early years of the Christian church. So basically they say most of the things that John is talking about uh, were about the destruction of Jerusalem, the fall of the Roman Empire, um, and all of that was fulfilled in the first couple centuries um, after Christ's uh, resurrection. So, you know, the, the true thing about that view is that there is a lot in Revelation that took place in the early centuries of the church, but the problem with it is that it, it actually, if you take that view, the majority of the Revelation has nothing to do with our current present moment. Um, and in some preterist positions, it actually denies the physical resurrection and the new creation because oh, wow. it says that that stuff was symbolic and it happened in the past. Um, so the second most common way of interpreting the book, and this is probably the the, the most common of all, is the futurist view. Um, and that believes that the fulfillment of most of the visions and revelation will occur in the future. So the first couple chapters are maybe related to John's uh, time period, but basically everything from chapter four on is completely about the future. And this is the most common view in the American evangelical church. Um, but I actually think this is, this can actually be a pretty dangerous view. There's some pretty significant pitfalls in that view that we need to be aware of. And so the, the third view um, is what's called the parallelist view. Um, and in that view, Revelation, what what's happening is that it is just telling and retelling the same story of history. And it's the story of the what happens between the first and second comings of Jesus. And I've used this, this metaphor before. It's like um, and you're watching a, a, a sports game on TV and they show one play from various different camera angles. It's like mm -hmm. the, the revelation is telling the same story from seven different camera angles using the seven different visions that John tells. And each of them is telling the same story in a different way. Each of them intensifies as you get towards the end, and each of them culminates in a vision of final judgment and the triumph of God over evil. Um, and so for that view, is Revelation talking about the past, the present, or the future? Yes, all of the above <laughs> is talking about all of them. Um, and the main focus is not to decode world events, but to actually display Jesus. 
um, to display him as the king and what he has done and what he will do. And I, and I really think that's the most faithful way of understanding this book because it, I think it aligns with what John says in the very first verse, what this book is, a revelation, an apocalypse of Jesus. He's trying to display Jesus to give courage to his friends. Um, I, I, was, I was deeply influenced by my mentor, John Stott, in this view, and he wrote a book on Revelation that I actually helped him with, helped mm. him write. Um, <laughs> right. And so, um, and he said this, Revelation is above all else an unveiling of the greatness and glory of Jesus Christ, because um, that's what we need more than anything else, not prophecies uh, or coded panoramas of church history, but a disclosure of the incomparable Christ. So that's what I think that the book is doing. That's good. Um, and you you mentioned uh, in a passing way the potential pitfalls of the futurist view. That's interesting because I think this is the main way many of us have understood this book. At least it's very common um, or present in our current cultural milieu. It's just free-floating beliefs, if you will, if you look to like the Left Behind series or just any sort of uh, allusion or reference to the rapture, um, late great planet Earth, like so maybe you could help us unpack uh, what you mean by the pitfalls of this view. Yeah, it's interesting that I, I think actually many, many, especially American evangelicals, don't actually know that there is another way to interpret Revelation. Right. No, I would completely other agree than that. that futurist view. <laughs> yeah, we weren't um, given another option. Yeah, per se. yeah. In fact, um, I mean, it's <laughs> my wife Sarah when she was growing up going to summer camp, they would have rapture drills in the middle of the <laughs> night where you would wake up. Oh my goodness! They, they would wake up the girls and say, "You know, the rapture's here." I mean, it, and oh so goodness. so she was terrified of the Book of Revelation, and you know, and I. You know, I grew up having the Left Behind series peddled to me, and so I, you know, I just thought that was the only way to understand this book, and so I tended to avoid it um, until I realized that actually the dominant view in history is the parallelist view. Mm-hmm. Um, it's okay. really just since the 19th century and the dawn of uh, dispensationalism in um, Amer- the American church that mm. that view became a more dominant one in America. Um, the reason why I am concerned about the dominance of that view is for a couple of reasons. One is because I just don't think... Frankly, it's faithful hermeneutics. It's not interpreting the Bible as the Bible is meant to be interpreted. So, for example, um, all this preoccupation with end, the end times, mm-hmm. focusing on at some point in the future, that's actually not at all what New Testament means when it says the end times. The end times is all the time between the mm-hmm. ascension and the return of Christ. That's the end. We're living in the end times. We're living in the there's two ages of the church. There's the promise age, which came before the incarnation, and then there's the fulfillment age, which comes after the incarnation, and that's the age we're living in, and those are called the end times, because it's the time directly before the parousia, or the return of Christ. So um, there's other things that are just totally... I mean, the, one of the best ways to interpret Scripture is Scripture interprets Scripture. So if you find something, you try to build a doctrine on something in Scripture that has no merit or any support in anywhere else in Scripture, it's probably not... So it's probably not worth... Mm. Um, fighting for. And so a huge view in futurist uh, premillennial view is is this two-stage return of Christ where there's like a rapture. And first of all, there's no rapture ever taught in Revelation, so I'm not sure how that got imported yeah. in there. Um, but secondly, like a two-stage return of Christ is nowhere in any part of the mm. New Testament ever supported anywhere else. And so if you want to interpret Scripture rightly... Um, so that's the first thing is that yeah. I'm concerned about it not being very biblical. Second, frankly, it is very Western and American-centric reading. It ignores the fact, it's, it sees the f- tribulation and the persecution of the church being all some future thing that we're like gearing up for and getting ready for. 
and it completely ignores the fact that we are an anomaly, that the great majority of the church throughout history and in the non-Western world is a church that suffers, mm-hmm. and a church that endures tremendous persecution, that this is, a, wow. this is not some future thing. This is the church now and the church of history. Um, I also think that this view is, this future view is pretty escapist and anti-materialistic. Mm-hmm. So there's not really any ongoing ethic of life about what Christians should do in between the times. Like yeah. there's no compulsion to love one's neighbor, no reason to practice justice and mercy, mm-hmm. no reason to work for shalom in our present experience because, you know, the world's just going to get burned up right. and we're going to get raptured away. And so well, I care about the world. Um, so I just don't think that's biblical. And then it's also just scarily militaristic. I mean, I, um, I know... Take up your arms. Yeah, literally people like gathering arms because war, especially war against like whoever the Antichrist will be is actually part of how we participate in the kingdom of Jesus, which is, again, completely antithetical to the message of Jesus in mm. his kingdom of peace. So all concerning to me yeah, about would, that futurist view. Would you say it's also safe to say that this is not the dominant view outside of America? Not at all. Okay. The, the dominant view... In fact, I was talking to a friend who was um, uh, taking a course uh, with... Actually, it was a course that I was leading in London called Wide Open, and it was a it was a course uh, for Christians from all over the world, young adults, who... This is right after college I did this. Um, and my friend Steve was there... And he grew up in a church that exclusively taught the premillennial futurist view. And he was talking to some African um, Christians who were there, and they were talking about how they live in the book of Revelation and how they find it's the greatest encouragement to them because they know that they are experiencing persecution. And and he realized that they are interpreting the book entirely differently and that it was much more of the amillennialist view of seeing that this is just a retelling of the story of history mm-hmm. in order to encourage the present church. And he was like, oh my gosh, I just was realized I was, my cultural blinders were taken off and I realized that I was missing mm. what this book's really about. So. Yeah. And I think this is just a really good place to start to say like how we approach this book is a lot of how, is the same way we approach our faith in life in this already not yet. Mm, um, it exactly. just bears tremendous um, importance on our day-to-day living. Um, so been grateful to to really dig in over these past couple months. And that's so, John's greatest point, is to encourage yeah. present faithfulness. Yeah. Um, okay, well, let's get into our questions. Um, folks have submitted these over the past week, so um, we're glad we can actually, you know, represent what you guys are thinking, um, thinking about out there. So the first question we've got is... Um, do you think John was an observer describing what he actually was shown or witnessed, or was he making up some or all of the text in order to get his theme across in his preferred style, which of course was a lot of metaphors, um, vivid imagery, use of numerology, recapping Old Testament images of heaven and end times, et cetera? Yes. I, I love this question because it's really a question about uh, the nature of scripture. Um so let me just back up and talk a little bit about how we understand Scripture and its inspiration. Um, I would say, again, painting with a broad brush, that there's mm-hmm. three general ways that Christians tend to approach Scripture. One is what I would call like the fundamentalist view, and that is that this is the Word of God only. Um, there's no human portion to Scripture. It's sort of like dropped out of heaven from God into our laps, um, and it's, in that sense, only read uh, literally as the Word of God. Um there's on the other side. There's a more uh, liberal view, which sees it as really only the word of human beings, 
um, might there might be some bits of inspiration in there, but it's really just uh, a, a fallible book of men who wrote this book. However, uh, in between those views and really rejecting both of those views is the historic Christian view, which is, I think you could call it the double authorship view, and that is that the Bible is God's word through human words. A um, couple of scriptures, I think, that represent that view really well are Second Peter 1, 21, where Peter says, men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. So he says, men spoke, so it's human beings writing and speaking, but they spoke from God, mm. inspired by the Spirit. Or... Matthew 1, in the way that he's talking about the Christmas story, talking about uh, what was said to Mary, he said, all this took place to fulfill what the Lord had said through the prophet. So did God say it or did Isaiah say it? Both, right? Um, so just like the incarnation, Jesus is Jesus fully God or is he fully man? Yes, he's both. He's fully both. God and fully both man. This hands. is a paradox. So is the scripture, is the Bible God's word or human words? Yes, it is God's word through human words. And so every book, and I just think that makes the Bible so rich because every book is inspired by God. We read it like we read no other book. We read it with great reverence. We read it on our knees, expecting God to speak through it. But we also read it as a book written by human beings that bears the particular culture and personality and characteristics of the human author. So I always point out, if you read the four Gospels, there's vast differences between them. You know, Gospel of John, Gospel of Luke are both two guys writing about the same experience of Jesus, but oh my goodness, they could not be, mm -hmm. you know, more different books because John was a, a you know, John was probably like a four on the Enneagram uh, and Luke was a five. He was a physician and yeah. he was like really focused on the details and John was a poet and he wanted to sort of see it mm -hmm. <laughs> imaginatively, you know? Um, and so it, it, it just gives us a different kaleidoscopic perspective on Jesus. So, so going back to Revelation, who is the author? Well, verse one says the revelation of Jesus Christ given by God from Jesus to John. So in one case, God is the author. He gave a revelation of Jesus. And yet chapter one, verse four, it says, I, John, write to the seven churches. So it's a letter from John. So I think we can say is that John was probably given this amazing vision revelation from God but then he took all of his amazing brilliance, his poetic artistry, his personality, his mastery of the Old Testament to actually create a literary masterpiece that is this book. So it's it's both. Um, it's John and, and a revelation of God about Jesus. Does that make sense? I hope, yeah, I hope yeah, yeah, I think so. Um, so here's another interesting group of questions that gets at the issue of all the images and symbols in this book. Um, is the beast a person or a government system? Is this imagery in Revelation the same as the man of, quote, the man of lawlessness in 2 Thessalonians 2? Also, what does the Battle of Armageddon signify in chapter 16? And, I mean, maybe we can just hold this for another minute, but another question would be, can you discuss the 144,000 mentioned in chapter 7 and 14 and why 12,000 from each tribe and those that will be with the Lord. Um, oh, why there are 12,000 from each tribe and those that will be with the Lord at the second coming? So a lot of questions here just around um, what these images and symbols mean um, yeah, so, uh, then so, and today, perhaps. Right, right. <laughs> so we grouped these questions together because they're all really about imagery and how do we interpret the images. And actually, it seems like almost every question we're getting back to questions of biblical interpretation, which is why it's so important we learn about that. 
Um, and I think it's important to to directly face these uh, metaphors and images because, again, we see them so often in the culture around right. us. The beast, the antichrist. Yes, people giving the sign of yes. the sign of the, the antichrist. Yeah, the mark giving of the meaning beast. Um, to these words in various ways, perhaps pretty unfaithfully. Yeah. Um, so yeah, just yeah. worth our time so, to so, so look at this. So here's another thing: we we already gave one important rule of biblical interpretation that scripture interprets scripture. Another important rule is always pay attention to the author's original intent. So, um, you know, like if if you read, don't don't read like a a, a novel like it's the Wall Street Journal, right? <laughs> I mean, it's yeah. they're, they're they're totally different things. So, mm-hmm. I always give an example of like a political cartoon. If you see a political cartoon, and I showed a political cartoon at some point in the series of like a dragon eating Hong Kong. Like if you saw that in the newspaper, you wouldn't think, "Oh my goodness, there's a mm-hmm. dragon eating Hong Kong." Mm-hmm. You would think, "Oh, this is a really interesting mm-hmm. symbolic interpretation of what China is doing to take over the democratic freedoms that Hong Kong has historically possessed over the mm-hmm. last few decades." Right? So it's it's a symbolic um, uh, metaphor mm-hmm. to communicate a truth. So John's work of, of literature, the genre is um, apocalyptic. And what apocalyptic literature did in the ancient world is it used images and symbols like political cartoons to communicate deeper truths. So, you know, instead of portraying characters directly, he does it indirectly. So like Jesus is portrayed as a lamb and churches are portrayed as lampstands and Satan is displayed as a dragon. And so a lot of the questions that that you just named um, you've got to follow that same interpretive principle. So the beast in Revelation 13, it's not meant to be a particular person or even one particular society or government. Um, John clearly has in mind Rome when he's talking about the beast. He's talking about their political military power and the way they demand allegiance. But Rome is just a recent example for John of the ancient pattern that was set out by Daniel because that's where John gets his imagery from, Daniel 7. So in other words, he's saying like any nation becomes a beast mm. when it exalts itself in its own power and economic security as a false god and demands allegiance. So oh. throughout history, that's been Babylon and Persia and Greece and Rome and any nation, any nation that acts in the same way becomes a beast. And We're so not it, safe it, from that either, are we? It, well, <laughs> no, <laughs> no. And so that's why this is so powerful because it means like, oh, we're not just like, this didn't happen back. The Predator's view says, oh, it was just mm-hmm. Rome back then. The Futurist view mm-hmm. says, oh, we're just waiting for that terrible... Antichrist one day to come. No, this is, means like we've got to have have care and vigilance right. now for how the spirit of the Antichrist might even get inside of us, mm-hmm. right? And that's, I think, what Paul's talking about in Second Thessalonians 2 when he talks about the man of lawlessness. Um, this That verse says um, that the man of lawlessness will oppose and exalt himself over everything that is called God or worshipped, proclaiming himself to be God. Well, gosh, that sounds a whole lot like what John is saying. Um, and so I, I think that all the biblical writers are, are not telling us to just be look on the lookout for one person or one government. It's just basically a warning that between the first and second comings of Jesus, there's always going to be people, leaders, institutions, and societies that exalt themselves and their power um, as godlike and mm-hmm. demand allegiance. Um, and the followers of Jesus have to resist that, knowing that the king, the true king is coming. That's good. Yeah. So the Armageddon thing... Um, that's, again, it's just a symbol. Um, some people do think that, like, the futurist view sees that there will be this one divine battle one day, 
in this place in the Middle East called Armageddon. Armageddon is actually a literal place in northern Israel where many battles were fought against invading nations, like if you read Judges 5 or 2 Kings 23. Um, But if you follow the same logic of John's genre, this is a metaphor for God's final judgment on evil, that it all culminates when evil is defeated on that day by the Lord once and for all. And the same with 144,000. Again, this has been misused to say that there's Mm -hmm. only going to be like 144,000 people that are saved. Um, but remember, John is doing uh, poetry. He's he's using imagery. This is more like a political cartoon. So it's not literally 144,000. Um, it's, you know, the 12 tribes of Israel times the 12 apostles times 1,000, which is a very large number of completion. It's mm-hmm. a symbol for all the people of God, Old Testament, New Testament, times 1,000. So the point is that this is a full, complete group from every nation. It's the completed people of God. Um, and again, John is just using this really amazing numerology and symbols and imagery to communicate a deeper truth. Yeah, that's great. I, I remember um, asking my mom when I was young, uh, you know, if I forgive my sister seven times 70, am I done? <laughs> you know, like, yeah. yes, that was my first lesson exactly. in, in this. Um, same, same idea. <laughs> Jesus is not saying once you hit seven times 70, whatever that is, you can then be resentful and <laughs> Yes, then I can just <laughs> be angry. But Jesus' point was, hey, you can't ever stop. Yeah. Just keep forgiving. And that's what John's doing here. He's like, that's just a really, really big number. You don't yeah. even have to worry about tallying the people. It right. just represents right. the whole completed people of God from all the nations. Yeah, and it's a beautiful way to say that. Um, okay, so here's another question about a section that we actually did not cover in the series. Um, I uh, was puzzled why chapters 17 through 20 were not included. Was it because of the lack of time to go through it, difficulty in explaining the multi multiple views on the millennium, or you just didn't want to do it? Yeah. <laughs> um, the, uh, to be perfectly honest, this was... It was a little bit of a mistake on my part. Like, I just ran out of time. So we had to do the whole book in 15 weeks. And when I planned the whole series out, I planned to cover every section of the book and just got squeezed where I realized I didn't actually, I needed another week for the series. So he's, this person's right. I didn't cover 17 through 20. I did cover 19, one through nine, which is about the wedding feast of the lamb, but didn't cover the main themes of 17 through 20. In, so, in some ways, I thought that was okay because it's just recapitulating the same mm-hmm. themes that we've talked about all along. Um, but just to give you a quick summary of what that section is about, um, basically it's John just retelling the same story about the the defeat of evil. So in 17 and 18, it's the fall of Babylon. Babylon's portrayed as this beautiful woman, the prostitute riding the dragon. She's a symbol of the rebellious nations uh, for John, the Roman Empire, but again, any empire that sets itself up against God. Um, and and then in 19 and 20, it's the same final battle. So Jesus appears riding a white horse ready to conquer, and his robes are covered in blood, which is kind of a unnerving image, but you realize the battle has not actually happened yet, and so the blood is his own blood. It's his, again, it's the slain lamb. And what ends up happening is there's no battle at all, because Jesus already won the battle on the cross. And so... It just says that Babylon and the woman are just defeated. And then this is the part that he's talking about in chapter 20, verse 1 through 7. It says that the martyrs are brought back from the dead, and Satan is bound for a thousand years, and the martyrs reign with Jesus. And then 
after the thousand years, Satan is released and makes war on God's people again, and then Satan and Babylon are finally destroyed. Now, that's that's called the millennium, and that's been, yes, a huge subject of debate <laughs> about Revelation. Um, there are some people uh, who interpret this as a literal chronological thing. So Jesus, this is what I was talking about earlier, the two-staged return of Christ. So Jesus returns, then there's a thousand-year kingdom, there's some kind of rapture, then there's a thousand-year kingdom followed by final judgment. That's called pre-millennialism because it sees Jesus' return coming before the millennium and then he returns again. And there's variations of pre-millennialism. There's classic pre-millennialism, which sees the tribulation after the millennium, and then there's pre-tribulation, pre-millennialism, which oh is what the Left Behind series is, is saying. And that's where Christians are raptured and taken away before the millennium, and then the millennium happens. <laughs> so, wow. so there, yeah, there's that. So, but I guess I would just say to you, Becca, like, doesn't that sound like what John is up to in Revelation? No. 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 <laughs> it, like all things in the book, um, I believe, and amillennialists believe, that's what I am, an amillennialist, that the millennium is a metaphor to describe... What? Yet again, the, the mm. time between the first and second comings of Christ. And the millennium just represents Jesus's present victory with the saints of God because of his resurrection from the dead. So Satan was bound, we know, at Christ's resurrection. It, Paul says again and again that he was defeated, and yet he's not dead yet. And so we're in this period of time where Jesus is reigning his resurrection has, in ascension, has demonstrated that he is king over all. The gospel is now advancing, but the world is still broken. And yet one day, Satan will finally and fully be defeated. So it's just, again, I think another metaphor and symbol of the same story that John is telling. And and here's the good news, though. The outcome is the same. Whether you believe in, whether you're a premillennialist or an amillennialist, the outcome is still the same. Jesus will return definitively to deal with evil. Mm-hmm. So, and so, could could you say that the millennium, this the thousand year period, is also a figure like the number? Yeah, is, it's again, it's is just, also it's just like all the other numbers that right. John is using. It's a right. number of completion, and that and he actually uses that number throughout the book, which mm-hmm. is yet another sign that it's uh, a metaphor to describe. The, the fullness of time, mm. that's what he's getting at, the mm-hmm. fullness of time between the first and the second comings of Jesus. That makes sense. Um, okay, well, here is another interesting question about the nature of heaven, um, which we kind of started talking about in that last question, but where do believers go if they die before Jesus comes back to renew the earth? Um, where are the spirits of the dead in Christ before his return? Um, and I know, you know, we've touched on this, like heaven is not our hope, um, and our hope is in the full restoration of heaven and earth. And so, yeah, let's let's dive in mm, here. Into that this. is such a, I'm so glad that someone, and I'm so glad, I'm so glad that somebody asked that because what that shows me is that, is that this person really gets it, that, mm-hmm. that our ultimate hope is not heaven. Our mm-hmm. ultimate hope is the new creation, the new heavens and the new earth. And if, if, if believers can just get that, I think that is a huge win for mm-hmm. us, that this idea of, of floating around in heaven as our ultimate destination mm-hmm. is not a Christian, is not the Christian hope. Now, heaven is hard to explain, though, because he, the Bible does talk about heaven, but heaven is not a place in the biblical worldview. It's more of a different dimension uh, where God lives. It's, you know, the Bible says Jesus was taken up into heaven at the ascension. And what does that mean? Does that mean if you just like go in a spaceship and you go really mm-hmm. far that somewhere between like 
I don't know, Mercury and right. I don't know. The, I don't know the planets. <laughs> Somewhere out there. It'd be a wormhole. Uh, G- and you G- get there's a wormhole. In. Jesus is there hiding up in the sky. No, heaven is not like a different location in the universe. Heaven mm. in the Bible is describing a different realm, mm. a different dimension. It is, I love N.T. Wright's uh, description. It is God's sphere of reality. God's sphere of reality. So here, here's an illustration that I heard once I think is a, pretty cool. That um, So like if you're reading a book, reading a story, a novel, there's two realms at play, right? There's the realm of the characters in the story. So let's say you're reading Harry Potter, like I'm reading to my nine-year-old right now. Mm. There's, you know, there's the, the realm of the story. There's Hogwarts. There's Privet Drive, right? And then there's the realm of the author. There's J.K. Rowling, who lives in Britain, Right. So there's two realms. There's the realm happening in the story, and then there's the realm of the author. Well, here's a funny question. Can the characters get into the realm of the author? Like if they just kept – if they got in a in a spaceship and <laughs> went up and up, would they one day just like burst into the room where the author was writing? No, of course not. They're yeah. in a completely different realm that's inaccessible. Mm-hmm. But can the author get into the realm of the story? Yes. Yeah. In fact, we know many novelists who've done that, who've written themselves as a mm-hmm. character into the story. And so in that analogy, like we're in the novel, we're the characters in the world of the story, and God is the author, and he's actually written himself into our story in the person of Jesus. He's become one of us, a character in our story. Um, But now Jesus has ascended, and he's gone back into the realm of the author where he reigns as king of both Mm. heaven and earth. And it says one day um, that he will unite heaven and earth, and there will no longer be a separation, and Jesus will reign forever as king over this new heavens and new earth. So, so what does that mean right now for believers when they die? Well, um, what it means is that believers who die go into God's sphere of reality, where Jesus is. That's why I think Jesus can say to the thief on the cross, today you'll be with me in paradise. Or Paul can say, I desire to depart and be with Christ. Or in Revelation 6, mm-hmm. the souls of those who've been slain are in heaven, are on the throne, calling out, how long, O Lord? Mm-hmm. But the point is, is that the Bible spends many, 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 many more words, much more time focusing on the ultimate hope, which is the resurrection, Mm. the final resurrection of the dead, rather than what I would call this in-between waiting space. Mm -hmm. Our hope is not the waiting space where we are waiting for the resurrection. Our hope is what N.T. Wright calls life Mm -hmm. after life after death. Mm -hmm. So we believe in life after death, but our hope is life after life after death. So this is very mysterious, but it just means that we know... What I like to say is, like, I believe that my friend um, who died is with Jesus. Hmm. Simply. She's with Jesus. And one day at the resurrection of the dead, I will see her in the flesh. Mm -hmm. We will embrace on a new heavens and a new earth when God restores all things. That's Mm. our true and living hope. Yeah. Yes. Good news. Yeah. Um, Yeah. I think earlier in this uh, series, you used the analogy of the slatted blinds, you know, oh, like the vertical yeah. that's, blinds. That's from Jamie Smith, yes. Yeah, that really yeah. has stuck with me, this idea that, you know, those old school slatted blinds over a, you know, porch door or something yeah. where if you look um, at them straight on, it looks like there's just a wall there. Mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm. But if you go to the side and kind of look through a different perspective, mm-hmm. you can see outside. Totally. And those that I think that has like helped me a lot as I think about this uh realm where God dwells. Um his... and which is so amazing about especially chapters four and five, because John is saying, hey, just lean over here and I'm mm. gonna let you see through yep. the slotted blinds yep. and see what's actually happening right now, right now in the throne room of God. Right and, now. 
I wrote down, I, I brought this quote from N.T. Wright, actually. Um, he says, heaven, God's fear of reality, is actually right here, close mm. beside us, intersecting with mm. our ordinary reality. It's not so much like a door opening high up in the sky, far away. It's more like a door right opening right in front of us, mm. where before we could only see this room. Suddenly there's an opening leading into a different world, an invitation to come up and see what's going on. So it's 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 more like Narnia mm, going yeah. through the cupboard yeah. than it is like, um, I don't know, Star Trek where you yeah. go into up into space. Right. You know? So And I think when it comes to this question of needing hope, um, this is the picture that we need that mm. that the king is reigning right now. Yeah. It's not that he is going to reign someday in the distant future. Uh, thousands of years from now, it's that he is currently reigning, um, and when we are disillusioned and disheartened mm. and beaten down, we we look to that, totally. to that place, yeah, to that throne. Um, okay, so we are winding down here, um, and I don't really know if this is a serious question or not, but <laughs> you know, someone asked it, so we're gonna we're gonna talk about it. Um, what does Revelation have to say about alien life forms and time travel? I think you might have joked about this in the yes. sermon, and someone <laughs> actually wants to know. It's not me, I swear. Someone else. Someone yes, else. I wants think to I know. might know who this is. <laughs> uh, I'm so glad they asked this. Alien life form. Well, I, I don't actually think there's. I was joking about this, but I don't know if there's actually much that it says about alien life form. However, what I do think Revelation says and reveals to us is that universe is super weird. And like mm-hmm. there's actually way more mystery going on. And actually we know what's crazy about what's happening right now, especially in the in the world of um that like the super smart scientists in the world of like astrophysics, is that they're it's like science is in some ways. I feel like science is catching up with the Bible mm. because mm-hmm. science is realizing there's actually multi dimensions to our reality. You know, yeah. there are potentially life forms in other places that we don't know much about anything of this. But I think what Revelation shows is that is that reality is very mysterious. Um, and in chapter four, when it has these four living creatures with like covered in wings and eyes, like. We don't even know what these things are. Yeah. Like, what are they? I don't know. <laughs> but what they're doing is they're worshiping God. And so what we do know is that every living creature in the universe, the ones that we know about and the ones that we don't, are actually doing the same thing, which is bringing glory to the Holy Trinity, mm. giving God glory. Their entire existence is worship. So if there are other aliens, it's not like things that we have to worry about. Mm. Like, they're 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 bound up in the same mission that we are to cool. glorify the triune God and to give him praise. So <laughs> I don't know what, yeah. like, what else to say about that, but I do love the time travel thing. And this is my <laughs> theory, okay? I've never heard anyone talk about this, but this is my theory. So if heaven is an alternate dimension that is right beside us all the time, yet heaven has a different space-time continuum than ours because God is fully, all time is fully present to God. So it's not like God has a past, present, and future. He's like uh-huh. fully present to God at time all at once. Well, let's say, so Isaiah enters the throne room in Isaiah 6, you know, a thousand years before John does. And let's say Isaiah enters the throne room and then John enters the throne room at the same time. So they're like, they see each other in the throne room of God, right? They're from two, (laughs) they're from two different time periods in one dimension, but they enter from two different time points. They could conceivably enter into the throne room and encounter each other in this alternate dimension of heaven. And then uh, what if they like switch places? Oh. They like went back. <laughs> so, so this is my theory this, that 
that it actually does support a concept of time travel, but I'm just not sure how we can harness this. <laughs> you are both a weirdo and a nerd because I know that you've been thinking about this. Oh, I spent and... a lot. Yes, I spent a lot of time thinking about this, but I'm not sure how to make it happen. Well, I think it's safe to say reality is much more mysterious uh, than we'd like to think it is. And maybe this view makes aliens a little bit less scary. Yes. Yes. <laughs> yeah. If we ever meet an alien, you just say, hey, man, I'm so glad to meet a fellow worshiper of the Triune yes. God. <laughs> <laughs> I'll do that. Um, okay. So we have one last question. Uh, what books can I read to further pursue or reinforce this view of Revelation as revealing Christ. So if you've got any other resources for us um, to keep our education going, I think that'd be really yeah. helpful. Well, let me mention just uh, a few that I've been using throughout the series. I'll, first, a couple on the more scholarly level, if you'd like to really do some um, digging deep. Um, the two books that I have really benefited from, the first is by a Catholic scholar named Michael Gorman, and it's called Reading Revelation Responsibly. <laughs> I love that title, Reading Revelation Responsibly. I think it assumes that many people do not yes, read it responsibly. Yes. Yeah, actually, my, one of my daughters saw this book, and she was like, that's pretty judgmental. <laughs> <laughs> but um, yeah, but it's actually excellent, excellent book, and it, it, it is a lot about the, the history of interpretation of Revelation. And then this this book by a New Testament, famous New Testament professor, Princeton, Bruce Metzger, is called Breaking the Code, Understanding the Book of Revelation. So that's mm-hmm. great. The two, I think, most accessible commentaries are, first of all, um, N.T. Wright, his book on Revelation, which is called Revelation for Everyone. Um, and then Tim Chester, who's a British pastor, he wrote a book called Revelation for You. And those are the two commentaries, I think, that are most accessible. As far as, you know, this person particularly asked, how can I further pursue this view of Revelation as really about revealing Jesus? The two books that I would recommend that are most readable in that account are, first of all, Eugene Peterson's wonderful book, Reverse Thunder, um, which is just a timeless book that he wrote you know, decades ago, but is still probably the most treasured book on Revelation. Um, and then, and then I, and I, will, I will give a shameless plug for the book that I helped John Stott write, The Incomparable Christ. This is actually only one quarter of this book is on Revelation. Um, it's the last section of the book. But he goes through the entire book of Revelation and gives 10 portraits of Christ. So Christ mm-hmm. is the first and the last. Christ is the supervisor of the churches. Christ controlling the course of history. Um, Christ like a thief in the night. So um, that's just a really wonderful way to view the book of Revelation as not being a crystal ball, but being mm-hmm. a, a kaleidoscopic portraiture of the person of Jesus. So kaleidoscopic portraiture of the person of Jesus. I think that's a nice uh, finishing phrase for this series that we've had on Revelation. So, Corey, thank you so much for your time today. Um, But I also just want to say thank you for the past 15 weeks. I personally have witnessed the time um, and faithfulness you have devoted to teaching this book to us, and I think I can speak for all of us listening that we are so grateful. I believe, and hope that it will bear much fruit um, in us for the years to come. So thank you so much, Corey. Thanks, Becca. Thanks Um, for this time together. Yeah, and thanks for listening. I'm sure many of us will be returning to this series and this exact podcast episode in the future. All right, y'all. Take care. Merry Christmas.